Well, good morning. I figure out how to reset my clock here. There we go. Um, yeah, Peter says it doesn't help. It's probably unfortunately true. <clears throat> they never taught me how to tell time. That's what it is. <laughs> Can I take a moment to greatly encourage our men, uh, especially if, you, if, well, all men who are a part of this church, as Peter gave a description of God bringing a people together, there's a great strategy in God going on every day of your life. We'll hit that in the message today. Which means you're not here by accident. You're not in this church by accident. You're not relating to the people that are here by accident. And, and it's no accident that you have the specific pastors and elders who care for your soul. It's not an accident that they feel led to do certain things to affect our lives. None of those things are accidents. And if you're a, a man here, um, you know, you should not be developing some idea that I, I treat pastoral leadership differently than I treat uh, employer leadership. Because if your employer said, you want to keep your job, you'll be at this thing going on next weekend, Amen. you would treat his leadership a certain way in your life, right? And so when we're not quite threatening you, although we might, but uh, <laughs> do you need to listen to what God is saying through these types of settings? You know, it was interesting to hear Ronnie Boyd's testimony last week, if you weren't here, but what was interesting in his life is he, he encountered God at that weekend in a way that was preparatory, and it, it injected something into him that he was going to need in November. So it was a January event that he knew God had done something in his life, and in November, he needed to reach into that supply of resource of what God had brought, which raises the question, how would he have weathered the day of November minus that encounter with God? And, and so, you know, please don't treat opportunities to encounter and receive grace from God like, well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just catch the next flight. I'll just take the next train. You know, the Bible doesn't read that way, and we shouldn't treat it that way. So I, I want to greatly encourage you in this, and, and I also want to encourage you to be a little bit brave uh, in this category. Because as Evan mentioned, I, I think this retreat, uh, as, well, all of these treats do this for us, but this retreat is going to introduce us to ourselves in some ways that in the long run are going to be very, very, very helpful. In the short run are going to be pretty, pretty, pretty uncomfortable. Um, all right, men are famous for this. How many of you guys can sit in a room and, and be smelling something and be going, well, what is that? smell. You know, what, what is that? You know, if you got kids in the room, you're wondering if one of them did something. It's like, did you, you know, and you're, you're sort of passing this blame thing around. It's like, is it, I mean, we'll do this. Is it the sofa? You know, is it the dog? What, what is it? And, and then at some point you discover it's you. <laughs> you are the purveyor of this odor. It's, oh, it's these shoes. Oh, my gosh. You know, and so you finally have to realize the, the stink isn't everybody else's fault. It's yours. Uh, all right, well, this theme of discovering how, discovering how it is that you and I play the glory game, discovering that, because not everybody plays it the same way, but we all have a problem with playing it. Discovering it takes a little bit of courage because you might have to realize at the end of the day that the foul smell in your life is not your wife 
Well, maybe it is, but not completely your wife. And it's not your kids, and it's not the people who didn't give you a break, and it's not somebody else, it's not your parents, it's not... That stink you've been carrying around, it's you. And you're going to keep carrying it. If you don't have the guts to see it and the trust in God to let him deal with it, you will just take it to the next thing in your life. Gentlemen, can, can you stop doing that? Seriously. Uh, one of the things, let me remind ladies, I don't know if you guys are aware that we've done this or not, but one of the things we're going to do at the men's retreat is we're going to have a big, giant marriage and singles counseling session. So it's going to be a big group counseling session. Uh, Peter and I are going to do the married uh, portion. And, and, you know, between the two of us, I'm trying to do the math on this, between the two of us, we probably have almost 60 years of marriage counseling between the two of us. Yeah, that's what Peter said. I have one day and he has the rest. Um, uh, but, but here's what we've invited. Here's what we've invited every wife to do. If, you, if we have an email address on a wife in here, your wives got a notice last week asking them to help us be aware of how your marriage needs help and needs counseling. What categories and, and, and then specifically what ways would you like for us? And it's an anonymous survey, so we don't kind of know. Some of you have been too specific, by the way, ladies, so I figured out who your husband is. But uh, they can send in information so that when we sit with you men, you're going to get a chance to hear what your wives would like to talk about in your marriage. Um, God, can I just tell you, guys, uh, there, there are some of us that, that there's just a stink coming off of our lives. And, and it'll, it will be so wonderfully liberating if you can identify how much of that stink is you and stop requiring your, your wife to, to be something different without recognizing that you are affecting your own marriage because you haven't quite figured out how it is that you play the glory game. So gentlemen, please don't treat this weekend like it doesn't matter if I'm there or not. I've got other things to do. There are issues in your life that sit in these categories that are just continually messing up one good thing that God has blessed you with after another. Please put it to an end. Please encounter something this weekend that I think can be very liberating and very helpful in your lives. And wives, if you haven't filled out that little survey. It just takes a few minutes and you just pick some categories and you give us a quick thumbnail in your own words of something. It might maybe just take you three, four minutes to do that. Uh, but send that back to us. It will greatly help us to serve your husbands uh, in the coming weeks. All right. Well, this morning we are continuing in our series, and I, I'm, not, I'm not thrilled with my title, so at some point if I, if I change titles halfway through this series, just forgive me. But it, it, it is a series of messages that I'm calling Fighting for Awareness. It is based in the Lord's Prayer. And, and the reason why this is, is because, you know, the Lord's Prayer is, is not just instruction on how to pray, although it is very much that. It is also instruction in priorities, right? Jesus has two occasions where he's going to teach on prayer, and he presents the same content in both settings, different settings, but he instructs them the same way. And so it's interesting that he doesn't have a set of issues that he presents one time, and then he turns around in another setting and, and, and you know, says, hey, let me teach you guys how to pray, and he presents a totally different set of issues. I find that interesting. 
I find that helpful in highlighting that what's in the Lord's Prayer must be really, really important topics and issues that we need to get them straight. We need to understand these really well. Now, there's a lot of stuff we need to understand, but the content of the Lord's Prayer is being highlighted and served up to us so that when you engage God, make sure you talk to God about these things. Make sure you bring this up in the presence of God and you meditate on these things. And and so one of the things I'd like for us to be aware of, that this is not just a series on reinvigorating our, our prayer lives, but setting some priorities in our lives as well. But these priorities, they they can't be sitting like in the back of our mind somewhere. We need to to wrestle them down into our soul to where they become living and, and effective and impacting. That's what I mean by that word awareness, that I am aware of this stuff. I wake up in the morning on a daily basis and these issues are close at hand the weightiness of them, the truths of them. They're, they're meant to impact me, but unfortunately, I, I, you know, I'm this way and I'm sure you're this way. I know so much stuff that shows up in such little ways in my life. And this stuff can't be treated that way. Interesting, Tim Keller in his book on prayer, he says, prayer is a conversation that leads to encounter with God. I I like that phrase. You might examine your own prayer life underneath that quick little phrase here. It's a conversation that leads to encounter, which means it's not just a conversation, which means, you know, prayer is meant to be something more than me just downloading a bunch of words to God or me coming before God with my worry list and letting him know that here's what I'm worried about today. God just thought you needed to know. Here's what's not going a certain way, just thought you needed to know. Prayer is an encounter with God, much more than just a conversation. John Calvin argues that Jesus' gifts for his people are not experienced by so many of them. That enjoyment, he says, can happen only through communion with Christ. And the secret energy of the Holy Spirit by which we come to enjoy all his benefits. I, I, I like those words. I like that they make me think of them. That there's, there's some kind of secret energy by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and this is John Calvin. He's not new age. I mean, this, there's something that happens. You get in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit begins to interact with you. There's something mysterious that goes on. There's this impartation. It's like the Spirit gives something to us in that exchange that I, I didn't have before I crawled into my prayer closet. And I, and I need it. Later he adds, for the word of God is not received by faith as if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depth of the heart, we must not settle for an, uninform, or for an informed mind without an engaged heart, right? Is that my Christianity right now? I've got an informed mind, reading some stuff, hearing some teachings, but an unengaged heart, It's terrible. It is possible for Christians to live their lives with a high degree of phoniness, hollowness, and inauthenticity. The reason is because they have failed to move that truth into their hearts, and therefore it has not actually changed who they are and how they live. Can, can I, I just, I think the American church needs to have this warning light installed on its dashboard. 
because we have such great access to information. We hear so many things. You can dial in, tune in, download, read constantly. But is it getting into my heart? Is it engaging me in such a, a deep way? Right? I, I think I, I put in there a, a warning for the really important thing in your life. Milk plus Hershey syrup does not equal chocolate milk. And stay with me on this. This is tough to understand. Right? So I take out a nice white glass of milk, frothy bubbles on the top. And I put next to it Hershey's syrup right next to it. Do I have chocolate milk? No, I do not. Well, some of us are convinced, no, I do not. So we take our syrup and we squeeze a big load of it. And what does it do? It goes right to the bottom. It sits right there on the bottom. Do I have chocolate milk? I don't. Take a sip and tell me if you have chocolate milk after you do that. Right? Everybody go home and do this experiment. <laughs> what does it take? I'm going to have to stir that up. I'm going to have to encounter that chocolate if I'm the milk. And, and then suddenly that milk begins to taste like chocolate. Okay. I can't imagine how many Christians today are, they, they, we, we taste like milk. We don't taste like chocolate milk. We, we just taste like milk. But we're aware that there's chocolate in our lives, you know, it's sitting in there somewhere. So we've got these great concepts sitting before us, right? We unpacked one of them last week and, and I hope that was helpful. But we've had this prayer squeezed into our glass. I had this prayer squeezed into my glass when I was a little bitty kid. Our Father, who art in heaven. I didn't even know the Bible. I didn't even know it was in the Bible. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom. I, I could pray it backwards and forwards. I could pray it while I was thinking about having to cut the grass. Right? So it, it's in me, but it's not really affecting me. So last week we looked at, you know, what does it look like for me to stir into my life an awareness that he is our father? And he's like no other father. He is in heaven with a perspective and a source of power and being. And, and Hallowed is his name. He is uniquely set above and beyond his creation. And I begin to take that into my life and it informs me. And Jesus said, listen, if, you, if you're going to need to be informed about anything today, when you go out to do your business, be informed that I'm your father and I'm in heaven. And my name is holy. It's like no other name. Oh, but that's not all. Make sure you're aware of this in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 10. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I know you, you've listened to that phrase. I've listened to that phrase. But we're going we're gonna to take that phrase apart today. The way in which I think Jesus gave these phrases on purpose. These are tickle points. This is not Jesus saying, okay, Start by praying these exact words and you're done with prayer when you've gotten to the last one. Say amen and you're done with prayer. I don't think that's ever been what Jesus had in mind here. Jesus gave these as, as tickle points, right? Things to stir our thoughts. So I'm, I've, there's a lot here. You know how much awareness is stuffed into that one little line we just read, right? Uh, there's a kingdom to be aware of. There's a will in this prayer to be understood. 
There is a location and a time frame being discussed here, and there is a conflict that is implied. Now, I need to know something about all this stuff, so let's pray for a moment and ask the Lord to help us see what's all here. Father, thank you for valuable, precious, weighty words concepts and truths that we can't afford not to be aware of. And so, Lord, I know, I, I, if nobody else can say this, I can say this before you, that there have been many years of my life where these were phrases that didn't echo off my soul. They sat at the bottom of the glass, and they needed to be stirred up, and then there were days in my lives where I needed to see what this verse was making me aware of. So God, help us today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just quickly unpack some thoughts. I'm going to go after three categories here. Let me start first with this, this whole kingdom idea. Like Into this prayer comes this word, this kingdom awareness. Um, all right, so you, you pick your Bible up. And, and maybe you're here this morning, you're, and you're new to reading the Bible. And so you've been around, you've heard people quote the Bible, people say things about the Bible, and you're wondering, what, what exactly is this book? Boy, it's big, it's a lot of pages, a lot of stuff here. And, and from what I understand about it, it's filled with phrases like, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. And, you know, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. So I know that kind of stuff isn't, and by the way, where is that? Um, so we've got this idea that the Bible's just catchy, wise, sagey phrases. Uh, and we just grab them from all over the place and then the Bible will make sense to us and we'll make use of them somehow. Uh, no, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible needs to be understood that it is, it is an unfolding message that's trying to make particular things very clear to us. And one of the, one of the word choices in here is the word kingdom. You come in contact with an understanding of the kingdom, then you begin to understand what's going on here. You know, there's other things in Scripture. There's, you know, covenant theology would be a study of how it is that the Bible is telling the story of God's covenants. Covenants that he makes with himself. Covenants that he makes with his creation. Right? So there's, there's a thread of covenant thinking that runs throughout Scripture that you can look for. There's the gospel thread. Right? This whole storyline from beginning to end is telling one story through very many different angles, but one story of the gospel is being told in this story. But, but listen to this thought, particularly from a theologian named John Frame, who speaks of the kingdom. He says, we have seen that the Bible story can be told as the story of covenants that God has made within the Trinity and with his creatures. There are other ways in which the story can be told, other perspectives from which it can be seen. One of these is the kingdom of God. The kingdom describes the dynamic movement of history. It is a world historical movement following the fall of Adam in which God works to defeat Satan and bring human beings to acknowledge Christ as Lord. All right, now, I'm going to chase that thought. You know, if you're familiar with teaching on the kingdom, you would, you would jump immediately and rightly so into the obvious things. Uh, a kingdom has to have a king. A kingdom has to have a realm. And so you'd be right to look for that in the Bible. You know, who's the king in this kingdom? And what's the realm in which he governs? And what does it look like for the kingdom to come? 
But I want to grab the idea here that this, this kingdom, as John Frame says, is a dynamic movement of history. It is a, it is a storyline that is moving. And that's going to have a lot of helpful insight into how I understand how that storyline is moving in my life today. Because I'm part of this kingdom. So, so here's this story. Genesis, God creates Genesis 1. We get to Genesis 3, and there's the fall. Sin has come in and corrupted God's creation, and it is beginning to decay, destroy, make dysfunctional all kinds of things in God's world. God's storyline is that he is going to step into his broken creation and redeem it and bring it back to himself. All right, now question. How long does it need to take to go from Genesis chapter 3 to the day of redemption? How long does that need to take? Days, weeks, months, years? It took some time, didn't it? But, But don't think it took some time because it had to take some time. It took some time because the storyteller chose for it to take some time. Listen to John Frame. He says, God could have remedied the fall in an instant, or he might have accomplished this work in a matter of decades. But instead, he determined a process spread over millennia. Why he chose to stretch out the drama of salvation over so long a time is a mystery. But God's decision is clear that the history of redemption will take millennia, leaving space for dramatic movements, ups and downs, twists and turns, longings and astonishments. Salvation is to be a great epic, not a short story. God will glorify himself not by measuring his kingdom in time spans appropriate to human kings, but by revealing himself as the king of the ages. All right, listen, this is, this is extremely helpful, right? This is one of those, hey, well, I'm just pulling this stuff out of this word kingdom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is a story being told. This kingdom has a storyline. It's a story being told by the author. He is creating this activity. He could have written it differently, right? The, you know, one of my favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings, and uh, I've watched the movies, I've, I've skimmed the books, tells this story that, you know, there's this discovery of this really bad ring out there that's got great potential to harm the universe as we know it, and there's only one solution, right? There's a lot of gospel overtones in the, in the movie. There's only one solution to this ring. It needs to be taken and dropped into the fires of uh, Mordor and destroyed. So that's where it was created. It's got to go back there, and it's got to be destroyed right there. So this epic nine-hour movie moves toward that end. And all along the way, there's this little thing that keeps happening that drives me nuts. There are these giant eagles that seem to solve everything with no problems. When stuff looks like it's impossible, the giant eagles show up and fix it all. So I'm thinking, all right, this ring needs to go to Mordor. Somebody just call the eagles. They pick up Frodo. He flies at 30,000 feet. He lands at Mount Mordor and runs inside and drops the ring, movie over, 30 minutes tops. Not nine hours. 
Why doesn't the storyline go that way? Because there's an author to the story that had a purpose in all these twists and turns and ups and downs and scary moments and successful moments and heart-wrenching moments and what's going to happen next moments. He was telling a story. And in a similar way, God has broken into and he is a part of and he has written this storyline for his creation. So God has chosen millennia over which fall all the way to the coming of the Savior. And then from the coming of the Savior to the culmination of all things, still more time. Where does that come from? Well, that's God doing that, right? So I wrote this in your outline to know that God could have done it differently. Is everybody aware of that? We could have got Genesis 4, could have been, uh, and God brought forth the Savior through Eve, and he died uh, an innocent death for the redemption of fallen man. That, that could be Genesis 4, you know. God chooses for it not to be Genesis 4. To know that God could have done it differently but intentionally chose not to reveals that he is up to something in the way he did it. He has a purpose, which means my life has a purpose. All the ups and downs, all the twists and turns, all the why doesn't my life just go from here to there in a straight path without all the drama and heartache, questions, uncertainties, why not just go from here to there? Well, because God is up to something. God has a purpose in his kingdom. And my life is part of that purpose, and your life is part of that purpose. So kingdom awareness, right? If I'm going to be aware of this on a daily basis, kingdom awareness means I need an awareness that my life is tucked inside of this unfolding epic kingdom story. When I pray, thy kingdom come, I am saying, let your story unfold. Oh, God, tell your story. That's what I'm praying. That's what I'm asking for. I am recognizing that this divine author of all that exists has a purpose in why things go left or right, why they take a certain amount of time, why they are not being done in a different way. And when I say, your kingdom come, Lord, I am, I am coming into agreement and I'm saying, God, I'm aware this is your story. Tell your story today in my life. And that helps me tremendously because I, I'm tempted to believe that this world exists to tell my story. And I would write it very differently sometimes. And it would avoid some of the twists and turns and some of the ups and downs. And so I'm just, I'm just if, I'm, if I'm thinking this creation, my life, the things that I know of creation, they exist from my story. Then that's where me and God get at odds because I realize from Scripture everything exists for his story. Now remember, don't get to this part of the passage without holding on to what we were taught last week. This writer of the story is my father. 
And when he writes the next sentence or paragraph with its ups and downs and twists and turns, he doesn't stop being my father in that moment. And I got to hold on to both. There's some implications in this idea that we're praying and asking for a kingdom to come and we're asking for a will to be done, right? So I'm greeting the day from a posture that I am asking for something. Well, you know, this is not rocket science. Uh, What's the implications of that? Why am I asking for something to come? Well, because my perception is it's not here or it's not fully here. And, and that would be an accurate perception. You and I pray this prayer, and we have this awareness that the kingdom of God is not fully here. And what would be the implication of standing before God and saying, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done? Well, wouldn't we be implying that his will is not being done? And I know that's, that's troubling theologically because understanding, listen, you, you have to understand something of the sovereign providential control of God even when King David is committing adultery with Bathsheba. But you do understand that there'd be a moment for somebody, you know, David's grandmother be praying, oh, God, your kingdom come and your will be done in David's life. And, and, and what does she mean by that? He's committing adultery with this woman and he plans to murder her husband. God, your kingdom come and your will be done in this. So there's this sense that God has not lost control of the situation, but yet there's something going on here that generates this awareness that, God, this cannot be what pleases you. This cannot be what you want in this world. So that's a big point to unpack, but I just want, want you to be aware that life can feel like and we can look at life and can see something that looks like this can't be what God wants. This can't represent God's kingdom. And we're left interacting with that thing. Okay, am I aware of how to feel about that from this passage? Well, yeah, I am. That helps me to know that I've not fallen off the planet somewhere. How about this implication of this, this kingdom, that there's something out there called thy kingdom, your kingdom, God. Well, would that mean that calling something God's kingdom would then make known to us that there would be another kingdom out there? That there would be other wills and desires and powers and principalities and governances and kings that are not God's kingdom. That's, the Bible would actually teach that, right? I'm, I'm just going to read through these passages quickly. I don't know if we've got them on the screen or not. But Colossians 1, chapter 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So by God's redemptive act, he puts us into the kingdom. But we all came from somewhere. We all came from another place another kingdom, if you will, and another domain of darkness. That's where we came from that competes in this world with God's kingdom of righteousness and light. That word for domain, it's, a, it's the word for power. It's exousia in the Greek. And it can be used to describe the power to rule or the power of a government. 
And so there's some kind of government, there's some kind of kingdom in place in this world. And so we stand with an awareness of of being able to say, God, not that kingdom, that kingdom in my life and in this world. And the Bible's inviting us to pray that way. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, describing the people of that kingdom, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world? Really? In this domain, there's a being with a title. And he has real power over people. This, this verse doesn't teach us that he just thinks he blinded their minds. It teaches that he blinded their minds. And it teaches that he did it. Am I, am I aware in my standing before God in prayer to ask for his kingdom to come that there's this other kingdom that's here and it's operating and it has real impact on people's lives in a real way. They really are blinded. I mean, we, why, why, don't, why don't we see the gospel? Why don't we see it? What, do, what is your answer to that? Well, is it 2 Corinthians 4? The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so that they do not see. They do not see because he's blinded. That's a real impact. Acts 26, verse 18. Here's, here's a real ministry for us. Paul was sent in his ministry, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So this kingdom idea that there's this kingdom of God, but there's another domain, another power, another kingdom at work in this world. Revelation chapter 12 gives us some behind-the-scenes view. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels, who's he's the devil, fought back and he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down to earth. So he has taken his fight, his resistance to God, his antagonism against God and God's purposes and he's taken it to earth. Therefore, we get verses like this in Ephesians chapter six. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The dude who was kicked out of heaven has come to earth. He's as much of a schemer as he's ever been. And he is seeking with his power to blind and to upset God's kingdom and to establish his own. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This, this isn't the way people are thinking out there today. Matter of fact, if you explain this too clearly to some people, they're, they're going to wonder whether they need to lock you up. And they've got ridiculous images, right? So you actually believe in a red dude with a pitchfork and horns. You actually believe in that? No, you're an idiot for asking. (laughs) What I believe is much worse than that. (laughs) If it was just a case of a weird guy in pajamas, we'd we'd all be doing well. (laughs) 
Right? This, this is what the Bible teaches. But you and I live in a world that has, has rejected this other kingdom reality and this other power source of struggle spiritually. Right? It's an interesting thought from Tim Keller in a book. You don't have this in your outline there. But he says, our modern culture does not believe in unseen spiritual forces. Suffering always has a material cause, and therefore it, it can, in theory, be fixed. Suffering is often caused by, listen to this, unjust economic and social conditions, bad public policies, broken family patterns, or simply villainous evil people. You're, you're not going to hear this at all. Tune into however many debates there are between presidential candidates not a one of them is going to explain to you what their policy is to deal with spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. <laughs> See, what will fix the brokenness of the world is a better public education policy or some kind of law to do this or something to adjust this aspect of human behavior and the way in which we all do stuff together. And they will live in that realm. And if you're not careful, church, you will listen to the scientific analysis of people, the psychiatric scientific analysis to people, the biological analysis of people, and the public policy analysis of our existence upon this world. And you will never hear the devil mentioned. You will never hear spiritual forces of wickedness mentioned. And you will begin to ignore them as well. Unless you wake up in the morning aware, I'm looking for another kingdom to come. And by implication, not this one. This one is troubled. This one is in the hands of evil. And this prayer is about informing us of those things. Second awareness in this passage is an awareness of earthly and heavenly realities. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Okay, how and where? Well, on earth, as it is in heaven, right? So there's something different about what's going on on earth right now and what's going on in heaven right now. Otherwise, this prayer doesn't make any sense. Am I aware that there is an earthly reality and there's a heavenly reality? That right now, simultaneously, there is something going on in heaven and right now on earth, there is something going on here. Am I aware that there's difference between the two? So much different that one could pray, God, what's going on there? Why don't you make that go on here? That's what this prayer is asking us to do. So if there's no difference, then that prayer doesn't make any sense. But if there is a difference, am I aware that there is a difference? And how does that awareness help me? I'll right, give you two glaring examples from Scripture. One is from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there's this moment in which you know, the heavens get peeled back, and whatever's going on up there that Isaiah previously didn't even know about much of, maybe at all, gets peeled back, and he suddenly becomes aware of it, and he gazes into perfect order. Everything is going perfectly. God is enthroned. All of creation spins in this 
worship engagement of God where he is at the center. You know, there's no circulation going on over here. It's all circulating around God. All the beings are oriented around God. There is celebration. There is awe. Nothing's out of place. There's no hidden motives and agenda in any of the creatures up there. They're not doing their own thing. They're not up yours, God. They don't have a bad attitude about stuff. Everything in heaven is going great. But Isaiah's feet are still on earth, and everything on earth is not going great. Right? When we back up into Isaiah chapter 1, the conditions on earth sound like this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Right? For the Lord has spoken. God says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4 says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Boy, is that the opposite of what's going on in heaven? No one's estranged in the heavenly scene. No one has rejected or forsaken the Lord. The beings with all the wings are flying around, gazing at God, gasping for air to cry out, holy, holy, holy is this Lord. And they stand in amazement. No one's looking somewhere else and rejecting God. But on earth, that's exactly what's happening. And this is just the consistent story in Scripture. You fast forward all the way to Acts chapter 7, and you, and you have that day where Stephen is standing amongst Jewish people who have a knowledge of the God of the Old Testament and who he is, and he's explaining to them that he's Jesus Christ. He's finally been fully revealed, and now we know this is what he's come to do, and all these prophecies, they're about him. And so he's just telling them the gospel. He's just explaining to them. Who Jesus is. Do you remember their response? They grind their teeth in anger, pick up rocks and stone him. And in that moment, the heavens open up to him and there's Jesus standing next to the throne. He is ruling all of creation. There's not disarray. There's not sirens going off. There's not red lights. People aren't running everywhere, freaking out. Oh my gosh, they've got stones in their hands. Woo! In the heavens, everything is in order. And Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. On earth, they can't stand the mention of his name. Do you understand there's... There's a reality in God. And what does that do for me? How does that help me with my awareness? Well, I'm, I'm deeply troubled by the idea that God might be as out of control as everything else around here is. And, and, and when you and I act in unbelief and uncertainty and, oh my gosh, how does this turn out? We're acting like heaven must be as out of control as earth is. God is frantic. He is running to and fro. He has no idea what's going to happen next. He doesn't even know if he can pull this thing off. Okay, I don't know how that does for you, but that brings me no comfort. Right, when the people in charge are as freaked out as the day-to-day -day people, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not inspired to be, hey, it's, it's cool. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. This is good. Uh, 
there's a revelation of heaven that God gives that brings to me an awareness that, you know, when people grind their teeth at God and want to throw stones because they hate the gospel, that doesn't de-God God ever. When people forsake God and wander from him and want nothing to do with him and bring all kinds of calamity into their lives, the angelic beings don't stop looking at God and go, who, did you see that? Oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? I don't know if we can worship God for another moment. Look, look what's happening on earth. That's not what's happening. Apparently, there is a kingdom that God is totally in control of that's running parallel to this one that feels like it's out of control. See, I take comfort in that because I know that that God who maintains control over everything will conclude this one exactly as he said. And that helps me not to lose my mind when it looks like things on earth are not going right. And so I'm able to stand in that moment and say, God, let your kingdom come here. But there's an implication here for this awareness. There's an awareness of the here and the now and not the there and the not yet in this passage. There's something going on in heaven that quite honestly ain't going on here. But it will be. There's a future for this. But it's not right now. All right, so I've got to install in my thinking, in my theology, in my Tuesday morning, that there's a, an element when I read scripture and I learn about who this God is, who's my father, there's an element in this ability for me to say, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, just like there, there's an ability for me to recognize there's part of what God is doing that's not here right now. But it will be. And, and this is enormously helpful for us. Because if you're not careful how you read the Bible, and I understand doing this, you can start expecting full-blown heaven on earth. And there are some people who teach a hyper version of faith that destroys this theology. I don't know how they get away with not reading umpteen passages like the ones that I put in your outline there. Like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Stop, don't read any further. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Am I, am I describing anything in your refrigerator right now? Right? Or anything in your life, right? You're young and you think you're not going to perish, but, you know, Take two quick breaths, you're going to be 50-something, and you're going to realize, wow, I'm standing up here right now, my knee is going, dude, you got a problem, problem right now. Matter of fact, you might want to go sit on that stool back there. I don't know what I did yesterday, but it's, it's not getting along with me right now. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, I, I, I'm fading, I'm fading all over the place. But this is a description of something kept in heaven for you, right, so... You know, how do I react to God when, you know, my knee just won't do what it used to do and it won't fix and it, you know. Do I have an expectation that I'm imperishable and I'm undefiled and I'm unfading right now in this world at this time? Or is that kept in heaven for you? Not here, there. Who by God's power and being 
are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Today, no. In the last time, what I, I thought salvation is upon us. Yes, it is. And there's something about it that's in the last time that's not right now. Not all of it. Salvation has appeared to us now, but not all of it. In the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, by contrast, right? You rejoice about that future thing, don't you? But right now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So there's a day coming that'll be grieveless, but that's not right now. Boy, I can start expecting my life to be grieveless right now. And that's not going to be helpful. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Right? I don't think we're going to become sofa furniture in heaven. I don't know exactly what that verse means, but I don't think we go from being children to what? Appliances? What's next? But this does say there's something now we've experienced about his kingdom coming and something not yet, but it's coming. Right? We, have, we don't see what we will be yet, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So there's a whole dimension that's yet awaiting us. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us then. So, so there's a right now dimension of God's kingdom activity and there's a then dimension of God's kingdom activity. So when I stand and I say, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Boy, I'm saying a mouthful, aren't I? There's a lot of really, really helpful awareness in that little phrase. John Frame says, biblical theology, which focuses on the history of redemption, has emphasized especially the two-age structure of the New Testament. The first of the two ages is this age, the period of time in which we live, a period that is to end at the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. This is the age in which sin and the curse continue in the earth. Do not be caught off guard by that. It is the present evil age. It is why this prayer is going to conclude, and we're going to spend some time in this category, with deliver us from evil. Why can you be standing on earth with the kingdom of God coming to our lives and still be praying deliver us from evil because this is a present evil age that we live in from which Christ's redemption delivers us. The age to come, however, is the age of fulfillment. The remarkable thing about New Testament teaching is that in one sense, the age to come has already appeared in Christ. For believers then, the coming age has begun in Christ. And this is, this is just very important. I'm trying to make it not so theologically complicated. Right? There, there is, there is a, an existing age of time that is coming to an end. And then God imposes upon it the new day and, and he creates this overlap where they both exist at the same time. 
So and on the one hand, this future has all this amazing stuff in it, this goodness, this no longer tears and no more sickness and sorrow. And like we live in this realm forever, get glorified bodies that no longer wear out. We don't have, that's where that imperishable treasure is waiting for us is in this age. So, so existing age and this future age and God takes them and he lays them on top of each other. And you and I live right in here where this age still exists and this age has begun. So I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, a movie that's ending and another one's starting, but they started them while this one's still running the credits. You know how they do that? The, you watch TV and they, they run the credits so fast you couldn't read them if you wanted to. And the other movie is beginning. So you got, you got one thing ending and another thing beginning in the Bible. And you and I have to interpret our lives in this setting. So if we stand in this moment saying, with an awareness that there's a kingdom coming and there's a will being done in that kingdom that's different than this one here. And we pray out of that and we have a revelation. So I don't want us just to be instructed on, so hey guys, when you're climbing your prayer closets, make sure you pray about this thing coming into this age because that's appropriate. Yeah, I, I, that, we should be praying that way. But I need to be aware of this in order to live my life, right? This, this informs my expectations about life in this world. This, this informs my, my preparation to live life in this world. We're not in heaven yet, but heaven does exist. And there are things kept there for us. And there are realities yet for us to explore and experience that, uh, that are going to be fully accessible in that day. They're, they're a bit accessible to us now. But they're not fully accessible to us now. I, I need to be aware of that. I need, to, I need to form expectations for this time in my life so that when it still feels like that old evil age, I, I don't act like, okay, God, I, I need a refund here, God. You said... Life would just be turned upside down and totally different. Yes, I did, but you, you didn't read carefully enough to see that, that you live right here. And so that, that evil age is still present and you still experience it. And there are moments when God steps into whatever the this moment is. You know, I'm going through this right now. Well, there are moments when God steps into that and just says, that's enough of that, and, and, and shuts it down and brings the future kingdom to bear on that thing. Right? That's why we still believe in gifts of healing, right? Because we believe in this setting, the, the new kingdom has come. And Jesus demonstrated that kingdom when he was here, right? He brought healing into people's lives to show them, look, in this, in this kingdom, we've got power over sin and destruction and health. And he restores health all over the place. But, but you do recognize he doesn't heal everybody. That day awaits heaven. And so then there's moments for us where, you know, we're, we're bumping into a, a person in need of healing. And we're asking for healing and it doesn't happen. What do we, what do, we do with that? I needed to be aware that I'm, I'm not living in one of these or the other. I'm living in both of them. And I'm going to need to be aware that in this age, sin is still present. Sickness still occurs. All of our bodies are going to fade and give out at some point on their way to a body that will never have those issues again. And that's where I am in this time of overlap.
So a couple of thoughts real quick. Experiencing out of orderness in your life doesn't mean I'm out of bounds. It may simply be a twist and turn in the epic kingdom story. Listen, do you understand if you don't, I'm not, this is, this stuff, you need to read this stuff, right? You need to study this stuff. Right? This is in the Bible. It's discoverable. And if I, I don't have awareness of, of these kinds of things, I, I, I bump into your life and, and the, the wheels are coming off your life in all kinds of categories. Stuff's going wrong. People are behaving bad. You got consequences happening. So, I, you know, I don't have any of this functioning in me. So what do I do? What's my comfort to you? Well, I'll probably sound like Job's counselors. You know, I, I probably think, well, you maybe need to look at your life a little more carefully. If it's going as bad as it's going, you must be up to something privately that nobody really even knows about. That's possible, but that's not the only explanation. Might it be that the sovereign writer of his story has chosen a twist and a turn and up and a down for some purpose that he desires to display his glory in some way in that moment that whether you had your A game going on or you're failing terribly has got nothing to do with it. Does that mean it never has anything to do with it? Look, of course it has something to do with it. But it doesn't always have something to do with it. Listen, this is just what you need, right? When, you know, the wheels are coming off of the eighth thing in your life and everything seems to be breaking. This is just what you need. You need somebody to come to you and tell you that you're to blame. Isn't that wonderfully comforting when that happens? Because I, I, mean, I already know that I fail in a bunch of categories. I, I kind of like the idea that grace came to me when I was at my worst. Anybody remember that moment? I mean, hey, I'm not trying to be proud here, but I'm, I'm a different guy than I, than I was when God stepped in and saved me. And then things have changed. Things have improved. There's a lot more cooperation. I applaud some of the right things, some of the right things now. Back then, clueless. And I was failing terribly, and God stepped in in that moment and did unbelievable, amazing things for me. Not because I did something that inspired him to do that. So it's just bad theology to, to think that every time the wheels come off and things go bad, you, you live in a world where the wheels come off of stuff and things go bad. And there's a devil out there. And there's opposition out there. And there is your choices and your sins and consequences. All that stuff is here. Just, just be careful you don't land in one category without any awareness of the other. My soul needs to be aware of this, lest I begin to draw wrong conclusions about who God is and what he is like and what his kingdom is all about. When it, when it doesn't feel enough like heaven, it's very tempting for us to start believing God is not faithful. God does not really love me. He doesn't care. He's punishing me. He's against me. Okay, if you and I can stand, and these disciples did this, they stood in a place where whatever was going on in their life, whatever was going on in this earthly existence, it was bad enough for them to say, God, not this, but that. 
That's an advertisement for the wheels are coming off of stuff. Things aren't going right, God. Not this anymore, God, but that. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Not this one, not the, not the God of this world or the domain of darkness, but your kingdom come, Lord, and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Why are they praying that prayer? Because the stuff of earth right now is, is bad, broken, dysfunctional, going in the wrong place. And that's what they pray out of. If I think when I get saved that earth becomes heaven on earth, I got no explanation for you know, when stuff goes bad, I, I, I start jettisoning who God is. I don't remember in that moment, this God is my father. Proved his love by sending his son to stand in my place sought me out to be restored to me. God, you know, God's not the freaky little kid in your neighborhood pulling legs off of bugs. You guys know what I'm talking about? I just, I know, just something curious about, ooh, look at that. Ooh, let's burn them. You know, that's not God. He's not that way. He sought us out, not so he could torture us. He didn't need to seek us out to leave us in our mess. He sought us out to restore us and to bless us and to give us a future we could have never had. And that future has begun. It's just not fully here yet. One last thing. Do this one quickly. This prayer highlights an awareness of thy kingdom versus my kingdom. There are other kingdoms out there. There's Satan's kingdom activity and domain. There is people in the world, etc. But my biggest struggle is the competition of my kingdom with God's kingdom. Right? I, I, I've got ideas. I've got things that I think really work. Even learned some stuff from Christianity that makes me bring some of that into my package. But at the end of the day, I'm still building my kingdom. And the reason why that is, is because back in the Garden of Eden, when sin entered into humanity, this, this viral infection, it, it, it made me want to make everything about me. That makes me feel secure. It makes me feel important. It, it makes me play the glory game. It makes me operate and seek after things that are not designed for me. And it just gets me in trouble over and over again. So there's God's will and my will that don't seem to get along. Tim Keller says Luther is the most vivid and forthright about the meaning of the third petition. He paraphrases like this. Grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity. And to recognize that in this, your divine will is crucifying our will. That's what's being prayed right here. Lord, your will be done. Not the devil's will, not humanity's will, and not my will. Your will be done right here. Tim Keller, very helpful insight here. He says, adoration and thanksgiving, this God-centeredness, it comes first. This is where the prayer starts. Because it heals the heart of its self-centeredness which curves us in on ourselves and distorts all our vision. Now that the prayer is nearly half over, 
and our vision is reframed and clarified by the greatness of God, we can turn to our own needs and those of the world. All right, so next we're going to start praying differently. We're going to be aware of our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. That's usually where we start, isn't it? God, I've got a daily bill problem, and I need you to step in in a miraculous way. And yet God starts by first divesting me of this hyper self-interest and this drive from my will instead of his will to occur, to turn me outward into his purpose. And, and, and listen, if, if the Son of God had to do that, you, you and I are not going to escape that. You do remember the scene in Gethsemane, right? Jesus not only taught, this is actually the part of the prayer that Jesus actually does pray in the Garden of Gethsemane as the cup of eternal, perfect punishment for sin has been prepared and is being slid across the table for the Son of God to drink every last drop. Jesus turns to his Father and says, what? Father, if it's possible, let that cup pass from me. But not my will. Your will be done. It's what the Apostle Paul finds himself praying. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where this, whatever it was, this thorn in the flesh has come into his life, producing struggle and weakness, complaint in his own heart. And he has appealed to God three times, right? He has exercised his will. He has made willful requests three times for God to take it away, take it away, take it away. And finally... God speaks to him and says, Paul, I'm doing something in this. I will not take it away. I'm doing something in your life, and you need it. It's about my power being perfected in your weakness. This makes you weak, and you need to be weak. So my power can be perfected in you. And once Paul gets that insight, it's your will, not mine, be done. Listen, at, at some point, all of us are... All of us are needing awareness of these things. Not just to pray them. This is, this is much more helpful than this. Here's tips on prayer. But I need to be aware of these things. I need to stir them into my life and my heart to where they are informing who I am. And I'm aware of them on a daily basis. Now, here's what I'd like for us to do today in closing. I want to give you a chance to stir the chocolate up a little bit for you personally. Right? So I'm going to want you to just get in a place where you're, you're going to have some conversation and I hope and trust some encounter with God right now in this place, in this room. So you're going to have some real intimacy with the Lord right now. Now I know this and you know, nobody raise your hand on this, but I know that you can, you can come to church and hide from God. 
You can listen to messages. You can listen to messages like this and hide from God. To choose not to be vulnerable to him. Because your life has got stuff in it that you can't explain, that troubles you, that you've tried to interpret and you can't interpret, or you've interpreted it terribly. Sometimes in those moments, I don't want to talk to God. I don't. I think I know what he's going to say. Probably don't, but I think I do. And I don't want to hear that explanation again. But the Son of God said, listen, you are my children. You you belong to me. These issues, you need to climb in your closet with God and discuss these things. They need to be your conversation with God. They need to inform your soul. So why don't you just bow your head for a moment. Just let me sort of fish around a little bit. And you, you are going to interact with God. You can tell him you're agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. You can confess. You can say whatever. But God is present here with us. He is gathered with us. He's instructing us to pray this way and to think this way. you pray thy kingdom come you're welcoming you're welcoming the ups and downs the twists and turns that tell his story just take a moment Be aware in the presence of God that God is telling his story right now through your life. He is. He's not forgotten you. You may not understand the twists and the turns, but you also don't understand why it took so long for Jesus to come and why it's taking so long for him to come back a second time. There's a lot about God's mysterious kingdom story. And you can right now tell God, God, I, I, I don't get that. But I know you're my father. I know you're in heaven. There's no one like you, and you are writing a story, a glorious story, a God-revealing glorious story. And Lord, even though I don't like some of the plot line, I love the thought that everything that exists exists for your glory. So God, I want to stop contending with your story this morning. I want you to know you have permission to tell your story in my life. I'm not against your story, God. It just hurts and it's a difficulty and a struggle. But I do want your story to be told. We pray thy kingdom come. We become aware of the now condition of conflict around us.
there is a war with real spiritual beings and it is a war fought by faith. Right now, as you are in God's presence, are you fighting? You live in the presence of another kingdom with another rival who has power. He has been thrown down to the earth and you are called to fight the good fight of faith. Are you fighting or have you quit? Have you given up? The fight will continue whether you turn your back to it or not. It still rages on. You cannot quit. You must by faith pick up the sword, put on the armor, Continue in the fight for my kingdom is coming, God says. It is coming in its fullness. And I'm with you in this fight. When we pray, God, here on earth as it is in heaven, we become aware that we are not home yet. The conditions here are not what is happening in heaven. God, thank you for that. Thank you that what's waiting for us is not another place like this one where evil and sin and separation and destruction are part of our experience. God, thank you that there is a kingdom coming where you have kept all that stuff away and you have not allowed it to pollute the kingdom that's coming sickness, the death, the departure, the dysfunction. They don't tell me you are unfaithful, God. They help me understand what you came to rescue me from. And that I'm not home yet. God, I lose sight of these things so quickly, so easily. I'm not aware of them. They're not stirred into my life. God, this morning, would you stir these things into our lives, Lord? Would you draw us into a place of exchange where we understand your kingdom and the conflicts and the issues around us? God, we're able to walk in these settings. We're able to prepare our lives. We're ready to to face battles that are coming. God, you have told us this. God, we're thankful. So God, not only would you help us to pray well, but God, would you help us to be aware well. Every day, every day this week. God, just take these last two weeks and let them be daily moments for us. Awareness, you are our Father. Awareness, you rule from heaven over a kingdom. You are telling a story that ends with your kingdom coming and this one being completely dismantled and overthrown. And one day, Lord, we will be home. Until that day, God, continue to rescue us from this place as we wait for that day to come in its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys.